evening, Redemption Tempe. Uh, I want to welcome you to First Wednesday. We've got a good night planned where we're going to discuss environmental sh- stewardship. But before we get started into the talks and everything, I thought it would be good if we started off with some music. And so we have Katie Wineland and the band that she's put together. Would you go ahead and give, give them a hand? And what's, what's special about this night is they've taken an old, well-known hymn called This Is My Father's World and made a new arrangement of it so that we can enter our night thinking about the God who owns and created this world that we are called the stewards. So go ahead and take it from here. This is my father's world And to my listening ears All nature sings and round me rings The music of the spheres This is my father's world I rest me
is an absolute gift for me because this is actually my favorite hymn, but I don't like the way it sounds. I love the words, but I, I, I asked Katie, could you put it to some music that sounds good? And she did a good job with that. So we really appreciate you guys for doing that. Um, the, the song tonight is fitting with our topic for First Wednesday, which is environmental stewardship. First Wednesdays are our monthly gathering where we look at different cultural topics through the lens of the good news of Jesus, through the lens of this big and robust story that God is unfolding in the world. We, in the past, we've looked at things like sports, creativity, art, politics, 
science. And tonight we have a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I love every first Wednesday, but there are certain ones that I look forward to with uh, a little deeper sense of passion. And uh, actually, I say this about every first Wednesday, but this time I mean it. Um, I am very excited that tonight our topic is environmental stewardship because I believe that this is an extremely important topic to address in our world today and often, unfortunately, not a topic that is talked about among Christians. So we want to start a conversation. Uh, We want to get the ball rolling. You will not walk away from tonight fully satisfied by design. We want you to keep the conversation going and to consider what this means for your life. So tonight, I'll tell you a little bit about what we're going to do. We're going to have three short talks. The first one I will give about a biblical vision of environmental stewardship. Then we will have Joe Johnston, the visionary, the man with a very cool hat, talk about the food system and what it looks like uh, to be a good steward within the food system. And then we'll have Jim Beiser from U of A come up and talk about climate change. Oh, we've got some U of A people here. Nice. This is, that's great. Well, we are glad you're here, and we will show you the way. Um, so before, before we get started with the talks, there's a few sort of fun housekeeping items I wanted to share, um, and, and it's some announcements. First of all, do you have a water bottle? Go ahead and hold it up here. Today is the last day of water bottles at First Wednesday. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I didn't want to be the hypocrite who just fixed the problem of, of water bottles on First Wednesday just because we're doing environmental stewardship. Uh, so this exposes us a little bit. But here's what we're going to do. When you're finished with your water bottle, put it, there's a certain designated trash can in the back for water bottles. And we have some people who are going to try to turn the water bottles into a greenhouse for, uh, for the community garden that we're starting in the back. So that's a pretty cool thing. Um, yeah. But the question that we have is, what are we going to do about water from here on out with First Wednesdays? So we've decided that we're going to actually have a a contest. Um, Whoever can come up with the best idea for what we should do with water on First Wednesdays, you you get a prize. So you can either email it to me, or I would actually encourage you to put it on the Facebook page. And uh, here's the prize. We have a custom commissioned painting by Autumn Farrell, um, who did a great job. Would you go ahead and give her a hand? And this painting is, um, uh, it has the theme verse for tonight, which is Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So uh, if you come up with the best idea of how we can do water, in a sustainable, and that's economically sustainable and environmentally sustainable way, um, you will win that prize right there. So, and there's one other thing I wanted to get to before we start tonight. Many of you may have heard that we are doing a community garden called the Red Roots Community Garden in the back corner of, uh, of of the parking lot, the northwest corner of the parking lot. We would encourage any of you to be involved, but... There's one person who's been instrumental in helping pull this together. And so she doesn't know we're going to do this. But actually, we've decided to institute something new 
at Redemption on First Wednesdays. We have started the First Wednesday Award for people who are faithfully and wisely um, engaging God's world in a way that contributes to the flourishing of the city. So tonight is the very first award that we're going to give, and we're going to give it to the person who has been a big champion for having this night here, has been a big champion for our community garden, and a number of other very important topics related to environmental stewardship, and it's Aubrey Brunchwig. So would you come up, Aubrey? Don't worry, we're not going to make you give a speech, but we do have to do the customary, hold the thing, somebody take a picture. All right, we're good to go. Thank you so much. We greatly appreciate you. Yeah. All right, would you give her another hand? Okay, before I go into my talk tonight, I wanted you guys to talk with each other. Here's a question to discuss around your tables. We're just going to take a minute or two, but discuss around your tables what, is, what are the aspects of God's creation, whether it be trees or animals, and be specific, specific locations like the Grand Canyon that you enjoy the most. So look to the people around your table and discuss that. God, we are, <clears throat> Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that we get to live in your world that you have so wonderfully made. You have given us air to breathe. You have given us good food. You have given us beautiful plants and beautiful places in your world to behold. And we ask that you would fill our hearts with gratitude and wisdom about how to respond, about how to be good stewards in your world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have the opportunity, really the task, of starting our night off and giving us some snapshots about what the Bible has to say and the Bible's vision of environmental stewardship. Now, this is interesting because when I first started walking with Jesus, I was on fire for the Lord. I loved him deeply, and there was everything about his world I saw as just a good gift from him. I would, I would drink some orange juice, and I'd be amped up about the God who made oranges. I would see the Honey Badger video or something like that and would say how cool it is that God made something like a Honey Badger or a porcupine or something like that. But here's the thing. As I became a, uh, a mature believer and began having conversations with people, I began to sense a subtle, just a very subtle un, uh, uh, unease with the topic of environmental stewardship as if it wasn't for Christians. And I didn't know the Bible well, and I thought maybe there's something in the Bible that says you shouldn't do that. I mean, I was expecting to find a verse that says, Thou shall not recycle, and thou shalt drown baby seals in a puddle of motor oil, or something like that. But when I opened up the Bible, I did not find that. Rather, I found a book that, talk, that talked about the world and its beauty as having a source from God. And so I want to make five points today, although I could make 55 points today, about how the Bible compels us to be stewards of this world. So let's, 
Let's start with number one. Number one is the earth belongs to the Lord, and we should respect his property. God is the creator, the sustainer, and the owner of all things. From the arugula plant to the Grand Canyon to your pet to the the great Mexican gray wolves, he is the owner of these things. And these aren't just things that he kind of likes, but that he, these are things he likes a lot. In Genesis 1, seven times God declares the goodness of his creation. Psalm 24.1 that we have on the painting over there says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Behold to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven's heavens, the earth and is all that is in it. All of it belongs to God and he likes it a lot. You can think about the Grand Canyon. You can think about honeybees. You can think about the Mexican gray wolf. You can think about all of these things. They're beautiful. And the Lord owns them. They belong to him. And there, if there is no other reason why we should steward the world well, it is out of reverence and respect for God. Because the world is not centered on us humans. It's not centered on animals or trees. It's centered on God. And what he declares as good is, is good. And we all know that if we loaned a car out to someone, and they, they returned that car, and it smelled like smoke, and there was a flat tire, and the windows were busted out, that person we would view as disrespectful and a poor steward. But we're not talking about cars. We're talking about the world. And we're not talking about a random friend. We're talking about God. He owns it, so we should respect it. The second point is that God created human beings to be stewards of creation. Environmental stewardship is not an elective that's just for the kind of granola Christians, uh, the, the, the Christians who listen to NPR and stuff like that. No, that, it's not an elective. It's an essential aspect of who we are as humans. In Genesis 2.15, we see part of the reason that God placed us in this world was to be stewards. It says, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. We also see that God reveals his character through the law and the various laws he sets forward. In Deuteronomy 25, he gives laws. This is just an example. Laws for the protection of animals. He gives laws for the protection and the rest of land. He even gives laws that if you are to go into war, you must not cut down the trees so that life can continue there afterwards. Caring for creation is not an elective. It is a fundamental part of who we are as humans and why God has put us here. Point number three. Creation is damaged by human sin, but God goes to great lengths to protect creation. This is really interesting. Human sin is when we rebel against God. We do things against the way God wants them. And it doesn't just have interpersonal so uh, psychological implications on us, but it affects the, the physical creation. Hosea, in speaking to Israel, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 says, There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, and he goes on. And it says, because of this, the land mourns. 
and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are dying. When humans sin, it affects birds and fish and oceans. We see this actually in Genesis 9 as well. You've all heard the story of Noah and how when God is punishing evil of humans, he protects animals by bringing them on the boat. But something that should stick out to you even more is that when they come out and God puts the rainbow in the sky, it's a God makes a covenant, not just with human beings, but also with animals. It says in, um, in Genesis 9-9, it says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring and every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you. As many came out, as out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. And so we see that God cares about his physical world and will protect it even from human sin sometimes. Point number four, human life is dependent upon God's creation. Therefore, environmental stewardship is an act of loving our neighbors. Listen, you might not buy the first three points. And you may be someone who says that only humans are the only important people or the only important creatures in this world. I think you're wrong. But even if you're right, Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. And guess where your neighbor lives? Here. This environment, this place, and breathes the air that we are talking about, eats the food that we are talking about, that comes from the soil that often gets polluted. We, our neighbors, are dependent on the, for their life on the environment, so it is an act of loving our neighbor and in obedience to Jesus when we care for it well. And finally, number five, God reveals himself through creation. Therefore, if we want people to know God, we should care for his creation. Now, this, this is really important because a lot of times we have a dualistic mindset that says only the spiritual is important, the physical is not important. Therefore, we only preach and we get our message out there, but we don't care for the physical aspects of this world. And, and I think that that is, that is wrong. But if you think that, know this, that creation, what God has created, is your ally in pointing to the greatness of God. We see this in, in Romans one twenty. It says, For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Again, in Job 12, verse 7 through 10, it says, But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. Ask the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. The fish of the sea will declare to you, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing. And what this is essentially saying is that there are a couple of different ways that God reveals himself. He reveals himself through what is called special revelation in the Bible, but also general revelation and through the things that he has created, the beautiful mountains, the deep seas, the crazy and unique looking animals, the plants. When we look at these things, we say, 
there is a creator and they harmonize with us about the message that we are saying of this great and beautiful and good God. Creation speaks about him. And if you care about people knowing God, you should care about stewarding creation. For the Grand Canyon points to the grandeur of God. The sparrows point to his provision. The lion points to the strength of our creator. The lamb points to the one who was slain on our behalf, who died for our sins, even our sins of desecrating his good world. And if we want the world to behold the greatness of God, we must not muzzle the voice of creation, but care for it well so that it can harmonize with us about the greatness of our God. Now tonight, I want to introduce another speaker. Because I've talked about, I've talked about theory to you. I've talked about the, uh, what the Bible says, which I think we need to obey. But I want to introduce to you someone, our next speaker, who is actually trying to live it out and put these things to practice. He's a man that I deeply respect. He's the visionary behind Liberty Market and Joe's Farm Grill and all that's going on in Agritopia. And he's got a great hat. His name is Joe Johnston. Would you give him a hand? Thank you very much. I wanted to introduce a couple of guests before we get started. Um, our head farmer, Eric Schultz, and his wife, Yvonne, are at this table over here, if you'd like to stand up. Cool. Yeah. And then flanking them are Jeff Krause and Aaron Krause, who take that produce and create some very artistic and delicious dishes, kind of completing that cycle. And I know many of you um, eat at Crate Bar and have partaken of our, our produce indirectly um, through his creation. So... Thank you for coming tonight. So I think we can all agree that there's some serious problems with the food system in the United States. And it's really rooted, I think, in, in the sin of greed, particularly on the uh, producer and processor side, and uh, the sin of selfishness probably on the, uh, on the consumer side. And those two sins have kind of intertwined into an unholy alliance that has ended up with uh, a lot of environmental damage to topsoil and to the water supply, to the quality of our air, and also has affected all of our health. I mean, we have obesity, uh, diabetes, and a lot of things that are related to nutrition problems and also um, chemicals in our environment. So um, the fact is, though, that there's some good news that every one of us can work to redeem the food system to one degree or another. And so I want to tell, tell you a little bit about uh, my story, and that is that about 15 years ago, as, uh, as the farm that I grew up on was in the path of development, we decided that instead of selling the property and moving on down the road, we wanted to develop a community that was um, developed around an urban farm. And uh, that is called Agritopia. It exists today, and we would love to have you come visit it. You'll see the slides that uh, Amy has uh, put up on the screen that kind of show what it looks like. So um, we decided we wanted to do an urban, organic farm. And by urban, we mean we wanted to make sure the farm was a blessing to the urban, suburban environment. Um, crops that we used to grow, like cotton, have only minimal usage for neighbors. Yes, you can buy clothes, but it's through a huge process for that to happen. 
So instead, we decided that we wanted to grow the crops that people buy every day at the grocery store. And so now we grow about 100 different crops, more than 100 different crops, everything from dates to tomatoes to lettuce to peppers, um, all sorts of things. And so it's this beautiful patchwork of a farm now growing so many different things. So I want to talk a little bit also about, even though it's urban, it's also organic. And what is organic? Organic is basically the way people used to farm for centuries up until about, about 80 years ago. And uh, well, what happened 80 years ago? And the fact is, is that at the end of World War II, uh, a lot of the firms that were making chemicals for munitions and other things converted to uh, making chemicals for fertilizer, for pesticides, and those sorts of things, and issued in what was going to be this kind of great age of chemical agriculture, that those would be the things that would solve problems, that those would be things that would increase production. And unfortunately, that's been uh, unintended consequences of a lot of bad things coming from that. So if we look back at this kind of healthier, more natural way of growing that's been, been done for centuries, um, that is organic. And uh, it's, it's actually fairly simple. Um, and I was going to talk about two major points uh, that we work on in organics. First of all, we focus on stewardship of the soil. And the soil is not just dirt. It's all sorts of organisms, it's all sorts of bacteria and things that are in the soil. It's a, it's a living organism in and of itself. And so our main goal is to steward the soil because if we have healthy soil, then we have healthy plants. And if you have healthy plants, two good things happen. First of all, more nutritious, so it's good for us consumers. And then secondly, a healthy plant is also able to combat disease, plant diseases, pestilence, and that sort of thing much more effectively. And so healthy soil, healthy plant. So the way we um, steward the soil is, first of all, we need to add back in organic matter. And all that really means is like if you go to the forest, you notice that um, as plants die, they fall on the ground and they rot, and that becomes incorporated into the soil, and it's nice and spongy and rich and that sort of thing. In normal farming, what happens is you just see kind of this brown soil where organic matter is not routinely added back into it. And it's almost like dead soil, you might say. So what we do is we make compost. And compost, all of that really is, is it's taking um, essentially plant matter and quickly uh, decomposing it and then adding it back into the soil. So what do you use for that? In our particular community, um, we use grass clippings from all of the residences, leaves from all of the residences, and then we also use uh, coffee from the coffee shop, uh, green waste from the restaurants, and recently we're, we've got an agreement with uh, ASU Polytechnic to take green waste from their kitchens to compost at Agrotopia. And then once we compost it, which is a multi-week process, we take that, put it back into the soil, and we're building the soil uh, season by season. And then secondly, we need to add back in some nutrients that our plants are taking away, because in the growing of crops, you do take nutrients out of the soil. And so we use composted um, chicken manure, which is a very uh, natural approach. And by doing that, we continue to build the soil and tend the soil and end up with healthy plants. So the second part of organics, after tending the soil, would be, um, I would say, a natural pest control. Because, unfortunately, because of the fall, work has been made difficult. And the part that's really made difficult in farming are the pests, and those take the form of insects primarily and weeds. And in terms of insects, there are good insects 
from our point of view and bad insects. The bad insects are the ones that are wanting to eat the same thing that we want to eat. So they're eating the lettuce leaves and that sort of thing. But there's these beneficial insects that are eating the bugs that are eating the stuff that we want to eat. And so um, if we can keep those populations kind of in balance, yes, we're going to lose some of our crop, but the, the beneficial insects will eat the other insects, and you have kind of this harmonious situation where it's kind of in balance. And the normal chemical approach, though, is to use a chemical pesticide. And that is generally indiscriminate and will go ahead and wipe out the beneficial and the non-beneficial bugs. Now, you would think that would be perhaps effective, but the fact is is that um, in 1948, when the first chemical uh, pesticides were introduced, uh, we used 50 million pounds of pesticides in the United States, and 7% of the crop was eaten up by bugs. By the year 2000, we used 20 times as much, 1 billion pounds of pesticides, and we had 13% crop loss to insects. So it hasn't been even that effective. We've had the effect of actually making um, pesticide-resistant insects, so you have to do more and more research for more pesticides and more applications and that sort of thing. It's kind of a never-ending cycle. And so this more natural approach is actually much more effective. As for weeds, we've been talking about the parables of the weeds. We talked about the sower and the weeds choking out the plants. Uh, we've also talked about, most recently, the parable of the weeds. And so um, weeds are a very difficult problem. The normal chemical approaches, we use Roundup to just kind of wipe out uh, certain plants and call it a day. Um, for us organic farmers, we get out the hoe and we chop them, or we pull them out by hand. It's all just mechanic. We have to physically remove them um, from the field. So that's kind of organics, this kind of pest control management that's natural and tending to the soil. That's really the very basic part of it. Now, at our farm, we also have added animals into the whole process, which has been fantastic. We call it integrated farming, and we use the animals uh, for two things. First of all, to produce a product, and secondly, to help us do the farming. So, for example, um, we have chickens for eggs, chickens for meat, ducks for eggs, ducks for meat, uh, sheep, and we also have uh, bees. And so the bees uh, pollinate our entire field, and make us much more productive, and we get honey from it, some really delicious honey. And then secondly, the chickens, for example, they, um, they are actually pastured poultry. They're not in cages. They're actually out wandering around under, in our orchard underneath the um, citrus trees, and they're eating bugs. They're eating the clover that we would have had to use a mower to mow um, if we had, had not had the chickens, and they make these fantastic eggs that are organic because we are using organic feed, and it's an organic pasture. Uh, by the way, we are certified organic, USDA certified organic, so we follow all of the prescribed uh, protocol for the Department of Agriculture. So we have this kind of integrated uh, farming going on as well. So that's what we've been doing, and there's a lot of things that you can do right where you're at um, to start, in some ways, redeeming the food system. And so I wanted to mention two or three of those, and one of them would be um, support farmers like us, and obviously farmers markets are a big thing nowadays, so I would, I would invite you to go to a farmers market and maybe buy one or two ingredients and just start playing around with it. Because if you go to the grocery store, did you know that the average uh, food item that you buy has traveled 1,500 miles? Whereas if you buy at a farmers market, maybe the maximum it's gone is 20 miles, maybe 30 miles. And so that's a big, that's a big deal. There's a lot of oil used up in the food system. 
Um, and then secondly, um, you can also start growing at home. Uh, this would be something I would encourage anyhow, whether you want to do growing here at, at the church or growing a pot of basil at home or in the common area of your apartment complex, uh, come together and start growing something. Um, go in your front yard like Mr. Mr. Jim Mullins here and have a complete vegetable garden in your front yard and start to see how the plant cycle works and also have these like great tasting plants and also particularly as Jim has done by pulling it forward and bringing his passion into the uh, into the public space you are able to create a community as well people come by and say what are you doing and they take part in that so you can do a lot of things that way and they, I guess lastly you know even just food choices that you might make at the grocery store um, you know, organics um, are, th are done through those processes that I spoke of, and it tends to be a little bit more expensive. But um, you might start out with things that are particularly sensitive to chemicals. And if you go online uh, and say which, which vegetables are the most susceptible to, to having chemical residues, there's a list of them. And there's ones that are less susceptible, but you might make some choices there that would be good. Um, look for non-GMO items as well. So just start making a few food choices. Um, we, I don't want you to feel guilty about what you're doing right now. It's just we can make some little steps and little steps to help redeem that food system. So that's it. Thank you, Jim. Okay, that's great. Well, now I'm going to bring up another speaker. Doesn't have a cool hat, not at all. His his. His hats are not awesome. As a matter of fact, he doesn't have a hat. But this man is awesome. He's a man I deeply respect. And, um, and you may have benefited greatly from the work that he has done. He originally came to Arizona uh, in 2003 to help conceptualize, to design, and establish uh, the university-wide Global Institute of Sustainability and its degree-granting pro program, the School of Sustainability. Any sustainability majors out here? All right, cool. Well, this is the man who designed your program, for better or for worse. Um, but right now, he's down at uh, U of A. He's the professor in the School of Natural Resources and, the envi and, and Environment, the director of Climate Adaptation and, in and International Development and Research Scientist, um, the, at the Institute for the Environment. He's a research scientist for the Office of Arid Land Studies in the School of Natural Resources and the Environments. The man has more syllables in his current title than I have credits in school. So would you go ahead and give a hand to Jim Beiser as he comes up. Thank you, Jim. So... Um, I gave a lot of talks, and I stand in front of a lot of classes, but none of them have ever had my family in here. So they're my biggest critics. Um, so what I uh, want to do, first of all, thank you. Uh, it's great to be back to Redemption uh, Tempe. Um, we, were, we came here for you know, two or three years uh, before we moved down to Tucson. Something that you, just, you said at the beginning, uh, has me thinking, I'm going to try something that I didn't intend to do, and, um, and it involves you folks. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask everyone in the room to close their eyes for a minute. No cheating. Everyone close their eyes. Okay. 
Now imagine yourselves in the most peaceful, pristine, joyful place where it takes you to the most serene spot. You can be anywhere. You can be on the top of a mountain. You can be playing your favorite video game, maybe in your favorite restaurant. You can be out sitting out the ocean. Okay, now without opening your, without opening your eyes, if you find yourself out in God's wonderful nature in a natural place, raise your hand. Okay, now don't put your hands down. Don't put them down. Now open your eyes and look around. You can put your hands down now. <laughs> That's not surprising, is it? God gave us this wonderful gift, the planet that we live on, and he made us. So wouldn't we have the greatest connection to what he's given us? Video games, cars, all those other things. Those are man-made. As Jim said, that uh, God has called all of us to be stewards of his great planet. He gave us this planet and let us live on it for a while. He told us to take care of it. Lots of places in the Bible also say, take care of the poor and the weak amongst us. Climate change, and I'm going to tell you about what I know and what I hope uh, I can share with you. Climate change, as we know it, uh, impacts this planet, everything we care about, all living creatures. And it's impacting the poor and weakest amongst us far more than the rest of us. So I grew up in Chile. Uh, my folks were missionaries down there. We, uh, we came back. We moved to Washington State. I went to the University of Washington. Uh, did my degrees in oceanography and marine policy. And then went to Washington, D.C., where I spent 20 years designing and managing uh, climate research programs from the federal government in an agency called the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. We, uh, we moved to Phoenix in 2003, and as Jim said, uh, my charge was I had the simplest position description, uh, conceptualize, design, and initiate the sustainability program at ASU. And um, so we finished that job, or at least it had legs, and it was time for me to go and find something else to do, and that's when we headed down to uh, Tucson two years ago uh, to take a job on the faculty. And, and really get into doing some, some research. Um, I'm also, uh, Dee and I are also really happy to be part of Dave Gaffney's church uh, in downtown Tucson. That's a lot of fun. Thank you for letting Dave come down and be there with us. Um, so, ASU, U of A, where's Ricardo? I saw him earlier wearing that. Beautiful shirt and wonderful hat. Um, I was going <laughs> to... So, and I've got two kids here at ASU. So I'm thinking, does that make me a sun cat? <laughs> I was going to say wild devil, but... <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. This afternoon, uh, about 2 o'clock, I flew back into Phoenix from Washington, D.C., where I spent... Um, a couple of days on something, the, a re, 
the release, the White House release of a report that I've been working on for the last four years, and I and 300 of those scientists. Uh, we did this uh, as advisors on behalf of the, the federal government, and it finally got approved, and so there was a big release. Some of you may have seen some of the news, uh, because a lot of news uh, was out there. And I was blessed to have a, a leadership role in, in, in that. I was, uh, we had 300 scientists uh, who were authors, about well over 1,000 who contributed to this 867-page report. Um, and it's the most comprehensive and complete report ever in any country has ever done, uh, and, and this was done for the U.S. And what it does is it tells us what is the best science can tell us about climate, what's causing climate change, what do we know about the system, what are the impacts, and also options about what we might be able to do about it. So in the next 15 minutes and 45 slides, I'll give you a brief overview of what, the, uh, what decades of research um, have, you thought I was kidding, um, <laughs> have to say. And, uh, and I'm going to give you um, some of the key findings that came out of this report that we just finished. Um, if this were Monday, I wouldn't be able to do that because everything was embargoed until it came out. But this is a, a, a nice timing. Thank you. So, um, uh, next slide, please. Okay, so this is what happened at the White House yesterday. This is on their website. You, it's probably still there if you go there. Next slide. And uh, here's what it tells us. That we have the evidence from all different places that the globe was warming. And that it's not just natural. And I'll come back to that a little bit. How it, it, it superimposes on all the natural cycles. People talk about natural cycles. You superimpose what we've done as humans onto the natural cycles. And in fact, uh, it is uh, still warming. And the, here are uh, a list of 10 indicators of the warming world. And I'm not going to go through them, but you can just imagine. I mean, air temperature is going up. Water vapor is going up. Um, sea ice's uh, level is going down. These kinds of things. So this is what we're seeing, we're observing, we're noticing. These are the kinds of things that, that tell us that, in fact, the Earth is warming. And I'm not going to expect you all to be able to see that. Probably can't even see it from the front row. But the bottom line, this is a, what greenhouse effect is. This is what happens. So God gave us really an awesome, perfect, balanced place. The balance was sunlight comes in. Life uses it. Plants, animals use it. In fact, over time, stores it into the ground in the forest. And then some of it goes back out. And what happens is that since the Industrial Revolution, we started pulling that carbon that had been stored over many, many millions of years into the ground. We've been pulling it out and putting it back out by burning it. And so what happens, that carbon goes, gets trapped up in the upper atmosphere. And, it, and, and the sunlight that comes in, in shortwave radiation, it turns into heat. So the latent heat and longwave radiation gets tends to get trapped by these molecules. And so slowly but surely we're warming the planet. And these are some of the, the things that we're seeing. Thaw thawing permafrost, droughts, floods, etc. Human-induced climate change has moved firmly into the present. That's one of the findings. It's not about the future. It's not something that's going to happen at the end of the century. We're feeling it now. 
And Americans are already feeling all types of increases in the types of extreme weather and sea level rise. Impacts are apparent in every region. We're seeing uh, droughts, floods, fires. We're seeing all of these things are happening in every region of the world and every region of the United States. Extremes are happening more often. You, uh, you know, if you're like me, you listen to and you hear a record, the weather forecast or the weather uh, report, it's every single year we hear a new record, a new record temp uh, uh, drought or a new record temperature or a new record high, a new record low, a new record this and that. And these are the extreme events. And human activity is a primary cause because we're burning that fossil fuel we're putting out in the atmosphere. So this is where it comes from. Um, just over the last, since 1850, we've been burning coal, oil, gas, uh, a little bit in cement. This is where, where the emissions into the, into the atmosphere are coming from. And if you map those emissions, this is a, just a quick chart to tell you that um, the, the black line, if you can see it, is the CO2 concentrations, and then the, these are the global temperatures. So you're, and this is a, from the average of, say, 1930 to 1960, and then you work it backwards, and it's cooler than, than, uh, than uh, that average. And then if you move up into the present, it's much hotter. And then this is just another way of looking at it. So by decade, every decade is the hottest. This is what we're seeing. Every decade is hotter than the last decade. Now, um, we've you've probably heard, well, yeah, you know, there's the solar radiation comes and goes, and there, there are these 11-year cycles, and so it's all about the solar flares and solar radiation and the cycles. The bottom line is those 11-year cycles, the top blue is the temperature. You'll see um, that they don't really map onto each other. This is what we're seeing. This is observed temperature going back um, again to the averages. So to the redder it is, the hotter it's gotten. And on the average, the U.S. has gotten a one and a half degrees hotter in the, over the last 40 years. And in Arizona, it's even more dramatic. That little box in the middle is the southwest, and including Arizona. 100 degree days in 2011, look at that. Each dot was a 100, uh, 100 degree day recorded. And um, in, the, in Texas and in Arizona, we had more than 70 100 degree days in 2011, and that's increasing. So that's what we've seen so far. And there are projections about uh, what is gonna happen to our global temperature going forward. This is, goes out to 2100, 2000, 2050, 2100. And the red is if we, is business as usual, if we keep burning fossil fuels and fuel and grow and our population grows more, um, that's the red one. And if we have more moderate growth or start implementing some of what we call mitigation efforts or changing the way we use uh, the kinds of fuels that we use, it'll still increase, but at a much lower rate, that's the blue one. So if we do that, then look at the projected temperature change. So the lower emission one is on the left-hand side, so we'd get four or five degrees. And by the way, that 20, uh, the, uh, can you go back one? Sorry, I meant to say something here. Um, if you look at 2050, and you know, for lots of people, that sounds like a long ways away, 
the increases, uh, even at the, at the lower range, the increase, in other words, if we really are aggressive about what we do in changing our uh, fuel consumption, the type of fuel, um, the temperatures are going to be twice what they have been up until now. In other words, we'll, we'll feel three to four degrees. In 2050, my kids uh, will be their parents' age. It's not so far off. Go ahead. Yeah. So other ways of looking at it, frost-free. Joe, you, you'll appreciate this. Frost-free frost season, well, that sounds like a good thing. You have longer growing seasons. But guess what? Some plant, um, cherries, they need to have frost days. They need to have certain plants for the type of, for uh, pollinators, for when it's going to blossom. And it, we're changing. So if you look at the West, 19 plus 19, that's the, a frost-free day is like the last day it's 32 until the first day it's 32. So it, it's no longer freezing and, and uh, we've increased just in the last two decades by 19 days and that's not a good thing, okay? Precipitation, so the green means it's getting wetter and this is just uh, in, in recent years um, and the, the yellow is getting drier and so uh, this in fact, uh, just to tell you when I first started this 25 years ago, this is exactly what our models were projecting, that northeast was going to get wetter and the southwest is going to get drier. And I'm sorry to say we were right. Um, very heavy precipitation. So 71% up on the top. So seven, uh, that this is uh, the one percent, the most severe 1% precipitation event. So let's just say in a 24-hour period, in a 24-hour period, 24-hour period, oh, okay. So in a 24-hour period, the, the, um, uh, the most extreme precipitation events, so big storms, big rains, the 1% the most, the most extreme, we have almost double that in just in recent years in the, north, uh, in the northeast and just a little bit more in the southwest. This is just pointing to climate is getting more active, and so you're going to have more extremes. You're going to have more droughts and more floods and more extreme weather. Arctic sea ice decline on the left-hand side, 1984, and the right-hand side, 2000, and what does it say, 12. Uh, 1.2 million square miles less sea ice. They had that, that ice had to go somewhere, didn't it? Guess where? Next. This is a, a Muir Glacier decline. This goes back in 1834, no, 18 somewhere. Um, I have it here. I won't rest until you, I tell you exactly. <laughs> 1934. I was off by a uh, century. 1934. <laughs> and, uh, and then 2004. Exact same place. Next. Here's a, uh, so it's, there are economic losses too. Here you take a look at um, the losses uh, by fire at California wildland land urban areas. These are, uh, so we're up to uh, 8,000 structures in, from 2000 to 2007 being lost. So that's increasing. Now that's a combination both of more fires and more people living close to fuel places like forests. Billion dollar weather, uh, climate disasters. Um, the redder, the, the more. So down in Texas, these are billion dollar events. So a, a weather disaster that cost over a billion dollars um, in between 1980 and 19, uh, 2012. Next. 
forecasting projected changes in global sea level. We, when we first started, we thought it was going to be closer to uh, one foot by the 21st century, but now we're thinking it's much closer to four feet in increase in sea level. And I don't have the chart here, but um, but anyone that's ever been to Florida or Louisiana um, can imagine that the big parts of those coastal towns will be gone. We're already seeing those impacts. Uh, one of the people I was talking with yesterday was a commissioner in Dade County, and and she said that they're having to deal with it absolutely every single day now um, because of this the sea level rise. So crop yields, so corn and soybean, the yields go down. This is our, these are experiments. The yields go down when you change the maximum temperature, and so this is just a way of saying, because you've, you've also heard, oh, more carbon, more CO2, plants love CO2, so they're going to have more food to eat. Well, guess what? Weeds like uh, CO2 more than the other plants do, and we're finding in our experiments that uh, you're actually going to have more weeds and more pests. Um, and even with plants, they're, you know, too much of a good thing. Um, ocean warming. Uh, ocean's getting warmer, warmer by a degree, and so this is one of the things that... Um, you also hear, well, so the last decade it hasn't really warmed like your model said. It's only warming about half as much or a tenth as much as what your models have said. So your models are wrong. Um, well, no. Um, the land is warming less, but we've, and what, our, what we found is we did underestimate our models not in what was war and how much warming there's going to be. It's just the warming is happening in the oceans, and we're finding that the oceans are actually getting warmer faster and, and they're absorbing that heat. And that's a matter of time, in fact, when that uh, stops. And not only it does it get warmer, but the more carbon dioxide uh, coming into the ocean, it gets more acidic, so the pH goes down. The red line is that CO2 that was going up into the atmosphere because of uh, energy, uh, greenhouse gases. And the blue one is um, the, what is that blue one? Um, that's uh, is, uh, carbon CO2 going into the ocean, and then the green one is the pH going down. And why does that matter? Well, clams and oysters and all the things that we love to eat can't grow in that kind of pH. So on the left-hand side is uh, uh, normal, and as you go to the right is, is uh, yeah, you go to the right, th these are clams that are being grown artificially, but in higher pH water. So you're gonna, we're gonna, uh, and we're already seeing that. I have a friend who grows oysters and clams in in Washington State, my old colleague roommate, and he's his business has suffered tremendously just from uh, a more acidic ocean. The impacts are projected to increase. So whatever it is that we're seeing is going to continue to increase if we keep behaving the way we do when it comes to uh, carbon. And our future um, climate change, how much it changed, depends on choices that we make today. Now, don't. So, is it a technical challenge? Is it a scientific challenge? Is it physics? Is it chemistry? Mm, not to me. To me, it's human behavior, it's behavioral choices. So, this was this morning's uh, New York Times. U.S. climate has already changed, study finds, citing heat and floods. This is today's New York Times. The next one is, uh, sorry, Phoenix, uh, where's the climate story on your newspaper? Tucson wasn't a whole lot better. You can see one down right at the bottom. 
Um, it's a newspapers, front pages of newspapers will tell you what people in their place care about, what their readers care about. So um, scientists, we look at data and graphs and the politicians, for those who can't read it in the back, the assessing the impact of climate change on the right hand side, voting intention survey, opinions poll. This is a, uh, what drives a politician versus what drives a scientist. And so there, but anyway, there are many actions we can take place. So I'm going to leave this one in a more bright uh, and not so dire because there's a whole lot that we can do and it's being done. Um, one of the cool things about the last two days where I heard of things that are happening all over the country, 60% of cities are already putting in place uh, resilience or adaptation preparedness plans for the climate is changing and putting in place energy, uh, greenhouse gas reduction efforts. So this is what we call mitigation, so our, our ways of, of changing the, the mix of the kinds of gases. In fact, just last year, um, there was, in Texas of all places, there was a month when 37% of all of the energy Texas used was wind energy. So people are doing things, people are changing. And people are learning to adapt, do things to their structures so that they can adapt to the change that is coming. I'm almost done. Climate Change Summit. This wasn't the one I was at yesterday, by the way. <laughs> the guy up there is saying energy independence, preserve rainforest, sustainability, green jobs, livable cities, renewables, clean water, air, healthy children, et cetera, et cetera. And then someone in the back says, what if it's a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? Okay, thank you. Take a quick moment now to uh, talk with your neighbors and just discuss what's one practical thing that you can do to be a better steward of God's earth. And just in a few moments, I'm going to uh, uh, bring the panelists up and we are going to have text-in questions. You'll be able to text-in questions to any one of us up here. So go ahead and have that discussion about one tangible thing you could do and we'll bring it back in a moment.
Okay, okay, everyone. Um, let's draw your conversations to a close. Um, before we get into the, there we go. Uh, before we get into the text in questions, uh, which by the way, the number should be up there if you have some questions to text in. Um, I want to introduce our moderator for the night. Her name is Katie Parrish. She's right there. And um, give her a hand. Yeah. And, um, and Katie works with Benjamin and I on our communities team. Uh, she's very sharp, and she's, uh, she asks great questions, and she's a good help. So she's going to be moderating the discussion. So she might tell one of us we're going too long. That's fine. And you're also uh, you're wearing your glasses so you can read the questions up there. I so, hope. Amy, would you or <laughs> I called her Amy earlier, and I can't stop calling her Amy. <laughs> I work really closely with him, as yeah, you can tell. We work really close. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. We got two Jims up here and two Katies, so we got to mix it up. Uh, Katie, would you go ahead and take it from here? I'd be glad to. Um, I'm really excited. So to start, get this started, go ahead and text in your questions. And can we get started with the first one? The Bible says that we are supposed to have dominion and to subdue the earth. Isn't this a contradiction to what you have said about environmental stewardship? Jim, I think that one's for you. Yes. Um, yeah, that's right. The Bible says uh, that, that humans are to have dominion, we're to subdue the earth. These are the words it uses. But you've got to think uh, a moment about the context in which uh, those words are being used. Though That's language of ruling and of authority. And if you look at the world today, I think it's pretty obvious that humans are kind of doing pretty well. We're pretty strong when it comes to the rest of the stuff. I've never seen a giraffe build a building like this or a tree, you know, destroy one of our houses so it can plant more trees or something like that. Although sometimes some hurricanes come through and they kick our butt a little bit. Um, but humans are unique in the world in that we do uh, in some ways... Uh, have dominion and subdue, and that's language of rulership. And that makes many of us uncomfortable, but should it make us uncomfortable, it depends on who you're comparing the ruling to. If you're comparing it to Genghis Khan or Joseph Stalin or many of the oppressive people that we have seen that have been so-called rulers in the world, then the earth should, should, be, should shake. Uh, it, should be, it should tremble. Um, and But if you're comparing it to God, God is the ultimate ruler. We are uh, stewards, rulers under him, who make choices sometimes about where houses go and where sidewalks go. But if we do it in a way where we're, we are reflecting God because we are his image bearers, what kind of ruler is God? He is loving. He is compassionate. He is wise. And the things that he does let help us to flourish. He is a God of, of love and of wisdom and of life and of flourishing. And if we rule in that way then and, and have a role in this world in that way, then I think that that's good news for the planet. And we also need to take that in context of Genesis 2.15, which says, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The language that is used there is this word abad is, is the one to uh, the word to work it is the, the, the Hebrew word abad, which means to serve, to help something reach its full potential. And, uh, and the, the other word, to keep it, 
is really the, the language, uh, the word is samar, and the language has this connotation of preserving and maintaining. So in many ways, you, humans have been given this unique role and this unique power, but we do it to draw the potential and help the world flourish. Sometimes we cut down trees, sometimes we build houses, sometimes we build roads, but we do it in a wise way that is... is um, that reflects the generosity and kindness and wisdom of God. That's great. It's about serving. That's really cool. Um, next question. Many people are promoting rules about the right way to eat, such as vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, organic, etc. In this confusing world, how can a Christian eat responsibly without being legalistic? Joe? <clears throat> okay, so... Um, First of all, I would think about, um, like in Mark 7, Jesus declared all foods clean. And it's not what goes into a person, but when, what comes out of a person that reflects their heart. And so, realistically, if a food is not going to defile you, it's not, it's, it's not there are no foods that are going to make you holy, okay? And so, being vegan is not more holy than being an omnivore and vice versa. But I think that you would then want to look and study very carefully Romans 14, which talks a lot about um, views held by people with regards to what they eat and don't eat and judging one another for what you eat or don't eat. And I think the idea basically is that um, we are supposed to be thinking Christians. We're not just supposed to be um, going through life not thinking about how what we do and what we buy affects other people. And so you need to be convinced in your own mind of what you should do and how you should do it and why you're doing it, and then realize that um, you are a servant of God and you're not supposed to judge another servant of God if you're vegan, not to judge the omnivore as being a sinner and vice versa. So it's more of a thinking thing and being convinced in your own mind that you're doing it out of faith and not just out of some list of rules that makes you better than other people. So. There's a lot of flexibility in that. It's just I would study Romans 14 very carefully and think it through, and I'm sure we're going to be studying it uh, shortly uh, here at church as well. Thank you. Some people dispute the urgency of climate change and say that it's a fear tactic that politicians use to raise taxes. One example is Richard Lindzen at MIT. How would you respond to these people? These people. Is, so is that person a Christian or not? Because if it's a Christian, I'll send them to Jim. Um, no, I, I don't know. If I, if I, it depends on what side of the bed I woke up on. I, I'd probably, um, maybe I'd tell them uh, that they're entitled to their own beliefs but not their own facts. Or maybe I would say you don't have to, you don't have to believe everything you think. Um, <laughs> But no, I probably, I, I think that the, the, the fair question, I, I know Richard Lindzen, um, and uh, he's no John Kennedy. Uh, <laughs> I can tell how old these people are, yeah. Uh, he, uh, I, no, very seriously. It's a, I would suggest, well, here's what I would do. I would first ask them how they know what they know. Because if someone is inclined to not believe data, and some people don't, then I wouldn't throw more data at them. I wouldn't show them these charts because they're not inclined to believe it. 
Um, I would have to find out what source uh, they were using to arrive at that. Um, I would point out that uh, the U.S. Um, subsidizes the oil industry by at a trillion dollars per year. If we were paying uh, what we really should pay, be paying at the tank or at the gas station, it would be closer to $14 a gallon. We are paying it. We just are paying it through our taxes. And these subsidies come in lots of different forms, and if you want to talk about it, I'll tell you later what, the, what those are. Um, I would also um, point out that the tobacco industry, the, the PR companies that they hired to discount science and were using exactly the same arguments. They were, say, they were first um, trying to put doubt in the science, then they were uh, making excuses, and then ultimately um, they went off to other countries to sell cigarettes. But that, by the way, those PR companies um, are the exact same ones the oil companies have hired. So uh, to me, it really depends on, on, and I would like to be able to have a, a, an interesting discussion and debate with them, so I'd, I'd have to know whether or not um, they uh, would discount facts and information before I could engage them in that. Thank you. What effect does desertification, the creation expansion of deserts, have on climate change? What can we do about it? I think this is also a good one for you, Jim. Desertification, yeah. uh, the creation expansion of deserts have on climate change and what can we do about it? That's interesting. Um, let me rephrase the question. What does climate change have on deserts, ha have to do with deserts? The desertification is actually a function of the changing climate, some of which is natural, but most of it is, uh, is human-made. And then what happens is that there's a, what they call a feedback effect, or um, when you have more desert, you uh, it also it ends up feeding back into the climate system. So that happens more locally. What can we do about it? We'd have to address the, the system as a whole. It's not just a, a, a localized issue. Maybe if I can ask Joe, if you want to comment on that a bit, is there anything that you're doing with your animals and the type of agriculture you're doing that can restore land from being kind of a, a desert barren space to a lush space that's full of things growing? Well, one thing we're trying to do is make sure that um, we use the water wisely on the farm. Um, we use drip irrigation, much of which was developed in Israel because they use, I think their water utilization in Israel is probably 90%, um, where they're very, very uh, cons conserving of water. And so here we're very wasteful of water. So we try to use uh, drip irrigation and use irrigation uh, uh, very sparingly just to be able to grow the crops. Um, in our community, we've done a lot of other things like... Uh, using uh, less paving, tree-lined streets, uh, things of that nature just to reduce the heat load in the area. But with regards to the animals, I don't know how I would make the connection correctly. Should I water my lawn? <laughs> um, they're pointing to me, which is strange. Um, so uh, something that we've decided to do at our house is we've decided to take the same water that we would use to grow to 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 water the lawn and to um, to grow food. So we have six raised bed gardens in our front yard, and it's the best neighbor making thing I've ever done. And I get awesome kale and 
one strawberry. I only successfully grew <laughs> one strawberry, but it was an awesome strawberry. Um, and, and, and so I think maybe the question is, um, well, let me back up. A part of why we're doing this, we have a goal in our home, and we're about a third of the way there, is we want to have, uh, between our front and backyard, more garden space than we have square footage of our house so that we don't have to, uh, so that very little energy is used in transporting our food to us. Plus, it's a great way to teach my daughter about uh, about uh, the various seasons and how plants work and all of these things, and the food just tastes better. The main point I'm trying to make here is I wouldn't make a legalistic yes or no. The better question is, how can I be most intentional with the space that I have and the space that I steward? So uh, maybe you do have uh, a lawn, but does it have to be a massive lawn? How are you using it? What type of grass? How are you irrigating it? Um, can you use some of that for garden space? Can you use it for xeriscaping and those sorts of things? I think that the, the question that we should be asking and even researching is, how can I be most intentional with the space that I have to steward? That's good. Thank you. I asked Jim once if he shared that strawberry. He said he claims he did. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any movement toward building more nuclear power plants since it emits no greenhouse gases? More nuclear power plants. Does anybody know? I don't know. <laughs> uh, a definite maybe. Um, the, the, uh, I don't know that there are any in the United States, but there certainly is a debate um, and a conversation. I, I happen to believe that nuclear power plants are a safe alternative, um, and I think they're increasingly safe. It, uh, and my generation isn't supposed to say that. But I do think that when we look at the mix of what we ha uh, have out there as alternatives, I think that we need to look at some alternatives like that one um, because because if not we're going to be digging that coal out there and putting it up there and this is for Joe how do you kill your livestock humanely good luck <laughs> um I was going to call the head farmer up here. Um, you, you want me to describe it in detail? <laughs> well, the, the only ones that we actually um, harvest, which is the word that we use, um, <laughs> would be chickens. And basically, um, we use the old-fashioned method. You turn them upside down and you basically uh, whack them at the neck and let them bleed out. I mean... Um, I don't, know, uh, I don't know what to say about it. You know, the, the thing is, is that, okay, this is what I'll say. We are so disconnected from the food system that we're really cool with chicken in the store, and we're cool with seeing chickens running around in the pasture, but we're not so cool with any of the intermediate steps. Um, we, just, we just sold some lambs to uh, Binkley's and F&B, which tasted great. And I, we did some Instagramming of us going to eat the sandwiches, and we got some commentary about, well, I didn't know you were going to kill the lambs. I mean, but that's what we were raising them for. And they had a great life. They had a really great life. So, so I, I don't know. I think the whole foods 
thing where you go in and you see meat wrapped in plastic and it looks all sanitary and you and then you see cows and there's like this disconnect in the process um, we know that uh, that after the flood the Lord said uh, you can eat meat we know that there were animal sacrifices we know he particularly liked the aroma of fatty uh, fatty parts you know if you really like the fatty parts the aroma and so um, <laughs> I don't know, I read that as being kind of okay for omnivores, but um, if you're vegan, it's all cool, and uh, I can see a good point for that as well. I want to say something about that, other than he pointed at me when he said the fatty parts, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, here, here's something that's really important from a, from a theological angle. I want to take this. Um, this is really important. When we read about sacrifice in the Bible, we have a hard time understanding it because we live in a world where we have been disconnected from the sacrifices that have to happen in order for us to sustain life. And God built something into the world that in order for us to live, something has to die. Whether it be a plant or an animal, death happens and it's what sustains our life. Our ears, our brains, the stuff that we are comes from the garden and comes from the chickens that had to bite the dust at Joe's, uh, Joe's farm. But here's, here's the reality. Uh, God built that in a world, I, into the world, I think, as an echo to remind us of the death of Jesus and that life only comes through sacrifice and death of another. And there will be a day when God does away with that because of the good work that he's done on the cross. But until then, we should eat with gratitude for the animals that died um, and, and with, with respect for the food, but also with remembrance of the ultimate one whose death brought us life. That's great. Thanks, Jim. What is one thing we can do to help prevent global warming on a daily basis? Jim? Well, I drove a car here, so I'm not going to say don't drive. Um, it um, Actually, I think uh, both uh, Jim and Joe gave some superb examples in the way they're living. Um, uh, it's just be thoughtful about... Um, how you use energy. We've never, you know, we're not supposed to be wasteful and we don't think so much about uh, how we use our energy or where our strawberry comes from in December mm -hmm. um, and how much energy it took to get there. And besides, it tastes terrible um, uh, in December. Um, I, th I think that um, there, so be conscious about how you use it. Make choices that are conscious choices, I would say. There are so many different ways that you can do it as an individual. Um, I'm tempted to say um, the most effective thing you could do is call your congressman and let them know that you're not okay with the policies that subsidize the oil industry at a trillion dollars a year. You're not okay with um, actually, frankly, uh, the insecurity, the national insecurity that's that we have when uh, we are so dependent on something that sits under the sands of places that frankly don't like America very much. Um, and so there are lots of good reasons to go that direction. You don't really even have to do it from the environmental side, um, but the, the truth is um, the, um, 
you all and, and your kids are, uh, are going to be suffering greatly from the inaction on our part. And it's a conscious inaction. I was thinking the other day, um, what is a solution that Arizona could do? And we did some calculations. And uh, you could go out and there are a lot of desert uh, out here. You can, uh, with today's technology, today's solar technology, a 100-mile by 100-mile grid of solar panels would power America. Today's technology. So it's not a technological challenge. It's just the will. And frankly, when you have so uh, as much wealth and wealthy people that are tied into the petroleum industry, it's just really hard. And so we can each do our own things. We can live and walk the talk. Uh, but to do it on a grander scale, on a national scale, we need to have um, our elected officials behind us in this. Something I would just add for our particular context um, is uh, one is there was a, there was a little um, list that came out, uh, an article that said Tempe is the sixth most bikeable city in America. We have great uh, bike paths and we've got great weather, so ride your bike more. That's, that's something that you can really do in Tempe. Um, and I want to really actually just commend my wife We've decided for this season uh, to reduce the uh, energy load that we have to not have a dryer uh, because we live in a place that has a lot of a lot of sun and the sun can do the job. So, uh, but it takes a little bit of extra work and that work typically goes on my wife and when she's like out of town or busy, that's when you see me wearing the same clothes two days in a row and stuff like that. <laughs> Um, but there, there are some small things that you can do that are context-specific that work really well in Tempe, which is ride bikes and use the sun for stuff. Yeah. I just want to, you made me think of something. I want to add, because uh, another calculation, I have to give you all this data. Um, I'm a scientist. Uh, the, uh, uh, we just moved to uh, Tucson, as you heard, and we're doing some things to our house. And one of the things that we're thinking about is, uh, putting in as much solar on our uh, roof that we can to power our house. But thinking about, well, this is really expensive, and et cetera, et cetera. I did the calculation, and I, we could take the money out of our uh, CD, which I think we're getting one half of 1%, and buy solar and pay myself 13.2% return. And so that's something that you can do um, even right now. Do you see that there being a connection between economic stewardship and environmental stewardship? Absolutely. I don't think that, I mean, we're driven by economics in this country, probably most countries. I don't, I don't think that you can implement environmental um, policies un, um, unless they make economic sense. And uh, pretty much everything uh, is making economic sense. Uh, ASU now has, I think it's 24 uh, megawatts of solar um, on their campuses, and, and there are times of the day when that's actually getting put back onto the grid. They're saving millions of dollars a year, so saving energy just makes absolutely good sense. And when you're saving energy, it makes good economic sense, and it also makes good environmental sense. So how should I discern how big my environmental footprint is in my life? Where do I draw the line? Example, bike is greater than hybrid car is greater than small car is greater than big SUV, which is better than three big SUVs. It's <laughs> a really good question. Who wants to take that? Um, Joe, I'm going to pass this on to you. And um, 
if you can talk a little bit about some of the decisions that you guys have had to make in just creating the neighborhood in Agritopia. Okay, so how does this relate to an SUV? I don't know. Okay, anyhow, um, so in Agritopia, one of the things we've tried to do um, is make a more walkable community. And because if you can get out of the car and walk, that's ideally the, the best way to go. So in our community, we've tried to make sure that we have tree-lined streets so that they work well throughout the year, particularly when it's warm out. We also uh, reduce the street widths, again, so that there's less heat load. Um, and that makes it more walkable. When you go from, from this campus over to our place, to Agritopia, it's about a three-degree temperature drop when you go into Agritopia due to that kind of um, intentional use of foliage and reduced uh, pavement width. So we've done that. And then also, um, we've tried to create third places within the neighborhood. So there's places where instead of going off to some other place um, to hang out, there's places right there in the neighborhood that you can just walk to or many people have electric carts and that sort of thing. And um, so we're just trying to make it much more walkable, much more pedestrian friendly, and uh, much more bike friendly. So that's what we've tried to do. And, and I bring that up because I think that this is an individual question, but also a systemic question, is that um, we, indiv as individuals, we can make a lot of wise choices, but we also live within a world, within a system, uh, where people are making decisions as well as far as how is, this, how is the city structured, uh, how are neighborhoods structured, um, even what entertainment that we see, and both of these need to work together. So one thing I want to say is, um, as, as followers of Christ, we say all of life is all for Jesus. I would say go into the fields of environmental engineering, civil engineering, developing neighborhoods, these professional fields, and do your work with excellence so that you can help create systemic changes that are, um, that, that are uh, better stu stewardship. So if you're a part of mapping out a city, you can really promote the bike paths of the city and uh, solar energy and those sorts of things. But then on an individualistic level, just um, on how you make these decisions, this is really interesting. We want a clear answer. We want a line. And really, we want a law. We want Moses to show up today and to give us some tablets that say, you can have one SUV, but not three, right? <laughs> um, but he's not going to show up because Jesus, uh, when he ascended, sent the Spirit to indwell us, to give us wisdom and guide us in the decisions that we make. And we live in a fallen world where we're not going to be able to perfectly do everything. We have to live, live within a broken system sometimes. But we make these decisions with the wisdom of the Spirit. But this is like any other question. The question of how much money do I give to the poor? Uh, how much do I serve my neighbor? All of these things are questions that we have to ask. And we ask prayerfully with the Spirit. And, um, and, and we get to a point where we say, I can do this much. I realize I live in a broken system. I need to live faithfully, and I live faithfully in a way that points to Jesus, the one who will one day come back and make things right. That's good. I, I have a follow-up question for you, Joe. Um, something I've struggled with in my, my own dwelling at home. It's good to have the trees and the temperature drop. Is it 
a good use of the water resources to water those trees to do that in a desert? How have you dealt with those water uses and what is natural here in the desert? Um, well, one of the things we have done is uh, we do minimize turf. Uh, the, way that the, the way that we designed the streetscape was we pulled the houses forward, reduced the, uh, the amount of turf, turf up front, and then have used it then for composting. So we've been harvesting essentially the grass and the trees and that sort of thing for doing composting and putting it back into the farm. Um, we intentionally looked at the plant palette for our area and we could have gone to Palo Verdes and we could have done some of those sorts of things and done a more of a desert style landscaping. But we decided that the walkability part was more important. It's just a balancing act because there's no, uh, as you were saying, there's no like single answer that is correct because each thing has its trade-offs. As we do our development on the corner that's much more, um, much larger and has multiple stories, we'll probably be looking at a very different way of doing the foliage there. We're going to be farming on the roof and on the walls and things of that nature. So we'll look at that again and see what sort of plant palette we want to use. So um, it's a tough question. If I lived in a neighborhood, particularly in Tucson, I love how Tucson has really kept the kind of the desert environment. Um, I would certainly have chosen um, trees of that nature that were indigenous. I appreciate the, um, the research and the thought that goes into the decisions you're making. Are there any more questions? I think we're good. Okay. All right. Well, will you join me all in thanking our speakers for tonight? Um, just a, one more thought of a practical thing you can do. If you have not ha already heard, um, Gila Farms comes every Wednesday night uh, to drop off produce. And for $25, you can have fresh, local, organic produce that you pick up here at Redemption, and it supports local refugee farmers. So that's another way that you can help. If you have any more questions for these guys, stop them on your w their way out. Ask them some questions. You can always find Jim around here on Sundays, probably most days of the week as well. And uh, with that, I think I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for nights like tonight, Lord, that open our eyes um, with renewal of your glory and your strength. You've created for us a home that is more beautiful, more purposeful than we could ever imagine. Lord, I pray that as we leave from here, that you would open our minds and our hearts to see the beauty of your creation, to live in awe and wonder of it, and that you would move us, Lord, to be great stewards of your creation, this home that you've created for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.